0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's good to see everyone here. I welcome our guests as well. Uh, please join me in prayer. Our heavenly Father, as we have sung uh, joyously and joyfully of your grace and goodness in calling us to yourself, enabling us and empowering us to worship you as uh, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to proclaim with a full heart and a sincere mind that you are indeed our Prince of Peace. <clears throat> we acknowledge that we do not take this privilege and this responsibility uh, to reflect your glory lightly. It has uh, come to us at great cost, that of the, the precious blood of your dear Son. And so we ask, Lord God, that as we serve you, as we worship you, as we live um, at, in, at a work and in our community... Uh, that you would continue to encourage us with humble hearts filled with joy and also the firm conviction as to the the sure and certain knowledge of who God is, that we would be your witnesses, that we would proclaim your excellencies, your character, your virtue with sincerity and joy, with a consistency, O Lord God, keep us from. Uh, The sin of uh, hypocrisy, where we uh, feel, oh Lord, that we can get away with behaving one way when we're with our Christian friends and then another way when we are out of sight. Make us aware, Lord God, that we live always under your loving and caring supervision. Uh, Father, we ask now uh, that you would continue to minister to us through your word, that we would know even more deeply. Uh, the joy of following Christ in, in serving him in all things. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> I apologize if my voice is a bit nasally and if I cough at certain points during the, during the message. Uh, cold and flu season continues. We're going to begin this morning by reading a a quote. Uh, I shared this quote at men's breakfast last week, and I meant to include it in last week's sermon, but I I left it out um, due to other considerations. It's from a Puritan uh, English pastor named Samuel Ward, uh, who lived between 1577 and 1640. He was a, a pastor in Ipswich, England. And the quote is from a sermon that Ward preached. I don't know the text. From which uh, this quote comes, but I I think it's an appropriate introduction for uh, our message this morning from uh, 1 Peter. Ward writes that the whole of our duty as men and women is to give ourselves wholly to Christ, soul, spirit, and body, and all that is within us, dedicating and devoting ourselves to his service all the days of our lives. Now we have spent the the last few weeks studying the tools that God gave us to stay faithful to Christ, to dedicate and devote ourselves to God and his service. We have seen that God has given us hope to help us keep following Jesus until we see him face to face, that he has given us the truth so that by daily obedience to the truth this hope that we have might be nourished and nurtured and cultivated and made stronger and that Lastly, he has given us the church to help us live out this hope and to know what it is to live out that obedience to the truth in the larger community. And so we looked at last week how God gave us the church to help help us to keep Jesus at the center of everything we do. To make sure that as we live out the hope that we have, as we live in obedience to the truth... We do this in the context of community, that we are not called to experience that hope or practice that truth in isolation, but in the context of a body of believers who themselves have covenanted with God and with one another to live in hope and to obey the truth. We saw that as the center of everything we do, Jesus then is the cornerstone of our worship, that he is the source of our identity, and that he is the focus of our mission, So that's what we did last week. We looked at Jesus as the cornerstone of our worship and how that affirms our hope in him. That we learned last week how we are living stones, meaning that we are a work in progress. So that the various trials and disappointments and difficulties and challenges we face are the means and method by which God the Holy Spirit continues to sculpt us more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that by continuing to come to Christ, By continuing to worship together, by continuing to live out that hope and practice the truth, God shapes us and forms us for that ultimate day when we take our place in his presence, as it says in Revelation, as pillars in his temple, given a new name, which is known only unto God and to us. And so we we see that Christ as a cornerstone of our worship confirms our hope We sang songs that confirm that this morning as well. We talked about the the names of Christ. We talked about the fact that as the rock of ages, our hope is that Christ has not only uh, given himself for us, but will cover us as well at the end of time. Uh, So this morning, we're going to look at the second aspect of that, uh, keeping Jesus at the center of everything we do as the source of our identity. And you have probably noticed we've slowed down a little bit. We're really moving rather slowly through this text, and there's a reason for that. We're we're moving slowly through these passages from 4 through 12 because Peter is preparing us uh, to receive instructions as to how to live in the light of these things that he is teaching us, in the light of these tools. So in a sense, he has brought us to the mountaintop, in verses four through 10. And then starting in verse 11, he's gonna lead us down the mountain into the valley to see how we can practice these very things that he has instructed us to do. He's doing essentially what Jesus, what Moses did in Israel and Sinai and what Jesus did in taking Peter, James, and John to the Mount of Transfiguration. He brings us up into the presence of God. We behold his glory. We see all of the marvelous and wonderful things and promises that God has confirmed to us. And then we're not meant to live on the mountaintop, but we're meant to live and to walk and to practice these things in the valley, proclaiming his excellencies, His, his virtues, his character, his goodness. To all of those around us. So that as the center of everything we do, with Jesus as a source of our identity, the verses that we have this morning, seven through ten, we're going to see how those who believe in Jesus um, will be honored by God at the judgment, and that God has a greater destiny for those who do believe in Jesus. So those who believe in Jesus will be honored by God at the judgment. This is verses seven and eight. In light of Uh, what he has already said in uh, verse 6 about Christ being the cornerstone, that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The context flows in verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, writes Peter, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now the honor about which Peter speaks here, is the honor that we will receive when we stand before Christ at Judgment Day, when we stand before the Judgment Seat of Christ. Our hope in Him as Savior, as Prince of Peace, as the atoning sacrifice for our sin, will not disappoint us, but in fact be rewarded. And we will receive from Him all of the things that He has promised to those who remain faithful to him even under the most severe trial. That whoever makes Jesus Christ a cornerstone of everything they do will be welcomed into his kingdom on the day that he comes back to judge everything and everyone on the earth. Since everyone who believes in Jesus, we know, is chosen and precious in God's sight, that whoever builds their life on the teachings of Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. This is the honor that is bestowed upon those who remain faithful to follow Christ their whole life through because everyone who believes in Jesus will take part in the resurrection unto eternal life on the last day. Now you can also include, I would imagine, in that honor what Peter has already mentioned about the fact that we are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, uh, to offer uh, spiritual sacrifices, that's an honor that God confers upon those who trust in Jesus. But there is a greater honor that awaits, and that is when we finally hear that upward call of God in Christ Jesus and we are called to the podium and we receive uh, the the final, if you will, seal of being welcomed into his kingdom. Because everyone who believes in Christ will receive that reward. But then Peter says very clearly that not everyone will believe. This is in verse 8. <clears throat> that instead of trusting Jesus Christ as a cornerstone, some will stumble over him. And they it'll, stumble over him as a rock of offense. And that word uh, offense in Greek is a word from which we get our, our word English word scandal. Christ scandalizes those who don't believe in him They stumble because they don't believe Jesus. They don't believe the gospel when the gospel says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They don't believe Jesus when he says, unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. And so they stumble over that because if you can remember when you were first presented with the truth of the gospel and someone informed you of the reality that you and I, apart from Christ, are sinners in need of redemption... That creates a sense of tension, a bit of hesitation in us. And we stumble over that truth. And Peter says there are some who stumble still over that realization. Understanding, says Peter, that their unbelief is the root of their disobedience. They disobey, he says, because they don't believe. And when you think about it, unbelief is the root of disobedience. It's because. Adam and Eve in the garden did not believe God had their best interest in heart by prohibiting them from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by refusing to believe and trusting God's goodness and providence, they disobeyed. And the same is true for us. What we do not believe, we do not obey. And Peter says there are those who continue in their disobedience because they refuse to believe the gospel. And by refusing to believe the gospel, they then cut themselves off from the source of everlasting life because they have denied themselves the opportunity to trust in Christ as Savior and as Lord. They have cut themselves off from the ministry of the Holy Spirit who will minister to them the truth of who Jesus is, the comfort that comes from that. They cut themselves off from God the Father who is the one who causes us to be born again to a living hope through faith in Christ. And so Peter says they stumble. But then he says something else. It's it's one thing to share the gospel with someone and uh, to have them react negatively to being informed that they are a sinner in need of salvation. To react negatively or hesitantly to say, I'm not really sure Jesus is God in human flesh. That's one thing. But Peter adds that they stumble and disbelieve and disobey as they were destined to do. This this should trouble us, and it troubles many. Because what Peter seems to be saying here is that God has not only appointed that those who disobey would stumble, but he has also determined that they would disobey. Now, when we hear this, I think we kind of feel the same way that the people felt when they heard Jesus say at the end of his sermon in John 6, Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And immediately after that, the text says, many said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But then when you step back for a moment and you read this in the context of the entire Bible, particularly the New Testament, particularly Romans 9, particularly Ephesians 1, begin to understand that the Bible teaches that God is sovereignly in control of all things. From hardening Pharaoh's heart in Exodus to decisions that are made by kings in Proverbs 21, even to the throwing of the lots, the casting of dice, if you will, in Proverbs 16. in fact, the, the, the cruelest, most violent act in all of human history, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, was predestined by God. Peter says this in Acts 4.23. Standing up, testifying to his brethren in Acts 4, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed at the hands of, of lawless men, And then again in Acts 4, he says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So whatever hesitation, whatever difficulty we may have, in understanding how God can be both sovereign and yet hold us responsible for our actions, Peter doesn't seem to have that problem. He is able to hold those two things in tension because that's what the Bible teaches. That just as Peter charges those who crucified Christ with killing him, even though that death was predestined by God, in the same breath, Peter will then criticize those who stumble and disobey and disbelieve the gospel their unbelief in other words says peter uh, may have been predestined but it doesn't make them less guilty they chose not to believe they chose to disobey they chose to stumble now again if that troubles you you're you're not alone And at the same time, the Bible clearly teaches God's sovereignty over all things, at the same time, holding us responsible for the choices that we make. The tension between those two things, the Bible really makes very little attempt to resolve that tension. That's why faith is required. And what makes that tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility so challenging is the fact that the Bible doesn't address it in the way that is going to satisfy our sense of logic or justice or fairness. But all is not bad news for those who stumble. All is not bad news for those who find Jesus offensive and a scandal. Because Peter does something in the grammar of his statement here that indicates there is some glimmer of hope for those who stumble. And it's, it's picked out and explained even further in a, a commentary by Wayne Grudem. It's a pretty extensive quote, but I think you'll, it'll help clarify <clears throat> some misunderstanding, perhaps. Gruden, uh, Grudem writes in his commentary in 1 Peter, this text leaves open the possibility of repentance and saving faith in Christ, the unbelievers, it talks about. The three key verbs are all in the present tense and may be rather literally rendered, but for those who are presently not believing, who are presently stumbling because they are presently disobeying the word unto which also they were destined. This does not, of course, imply that they will come to saving faith but it does stop short of saying that their eternal condemnation is already ordained. It rather affirms that their present rebellion and disobedience has been ordained by God and does not indicate whether it will continue throughout life or not. Indeed, it could not indicate this because Peter explicitly affirms the hope that many of those same unbelievers will come to faith. You can see that in verses, uh, verse 12 of chapter 2, verse 1 of chapter 3, and verse 9 of Chapter 3 in 2 Peter. So in other words, if you have an unbelieving family member, if you have an unbelieving friend, you have an unbelieving coworker that you have been sharing the gospel with, that perhaps has even been mocking or teasing you with regard to your faith, and when you share the gospel, that door is closed, there is still hope. Right? Their ultimate destiny has not been decided, which is why God has placed you in their path. He has put you in their life so that you can be the one who can proclaim to them the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It also gives you a great sense of calm and assurance in realizing that their rejection of the gospel is not a rejection of you. It's not a personal thing. That they are are taking offense at what Jesus says and who Jesus is, not you. Which then calls us to have a greater responsibility to be loving and kind toward them. Because we do not want to be the one over whom they stumble. We want Jesus to be the one over whom they stumble. We want Jesus to be the one whom they encounter. We want Jesus to be the one whom the Holy Spirit opens their heart to receive and to understand and to see. So you may have someone very close to you who is tough and hard and hardened against the truth. Take heart. Their destiny, their ultimate destiny is not yet known, which is why God has placed you in their path. And remember, this is written by a man. (laughs) This is written by a man who denied Jesus three times. I I was reading through... uh, the Gospel of John, a couple of weeks ago. And if you have read the Gospel of John, you know at the very end of of the Gospel, I think it's in chapter 21, after Jesus is resurrected and goes away for a time, Peter stands up and he tells the rest of the apostles, I'm going fishing. So we go out and fish. And they spend all night fishing, and then the, the Gospel says that Jesus is on the shore and he calls out to the apostles. And he says, children, have you caught any fish? John recognizes that is Jesus. Peter uh, girds up his loins and he swims to shore. And there we're told Jesus has fish already prepared for them. But then there's a very curious addition there. That Jesus had already set up a charcoal fire on which he was cooking the fish. And that just caught my attention. John could have easily said... He could have let that detail out. Or he could have simply said it was just a fire. But he specifies charcoal fire. Why does he do that? Well, you flip a few pages back in John's Gospel. On the night that Jesus is arrested. And Peter follows. Along with the Apostle John. And John goes in because he knows someone in the court. But Peter standing outside warming himself over a charcoal fire. It's over that fire that he denies Jesus three times. It's over the same charcoal fire that Jesus then asks Peter to reaffirm his love three times. You fail Christ. The very thing over which you have failed him may in fact be the very thing by which he calls you back to reaffirm his love, your love for him. The very thing that may cause your loved one, your friend, your co-worker to stumble, which is the gospel, that's the very thing that's going to bring them to Christ. That's why you're in their path. That's why you're there. That's why God has chosen you. To be a royal priest because what does a priest do but take the grace that is received, the mercy that is received from God on behalf of the people and then he spreads it and he shares it with others. That's our calling. We come and we, in a sense, receive and then we give. And we give and we give because we have received much. Now, whether you believe uh, God sovereignly chooses uh, those who will believe or not, whether you believe that God sovereignly chooses or that we have uh, the free will to choose salvation, this much is true of either view. Both agree that the Bible tells us God considers the salvation of humanity to be very important. That both agree that God invites everyone, everywhere, to repent And that both agree that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Where the two views differ, where those who advocate for the sovereignty of God in salvation and those who advocate for free will, where they differ is how each view believes God considers to be more important. Which does God consider to be more important? His own glory or our free will? If you take the side of Augustine and Calvin, the Reformed theology view, begin to understand that God values and considers his glory to be more important than our salvation. If you take the Arminian view, the free will view advocated by Jacob Arminius, who believe that we have the power in and of ourselves, though spiritually dead, to choose to be saved, then you will have the view that God values your free choice as the most important thing. It's our position here at MGC that the reform view, that God values his glory as the most important thing to be more biblically defensible and more biblically sound. If you have questions about that, see me, see me after, and we'll talk about it. But this, this much is certain. Whatever view you have of how we are saved, when Peter talks about people stumbling as they are destined to do, his intention here by emphasizing God's sovereignty is to offer great comfort to his people, to assure them that though the world seems spinning out of control, that this present darkness seems to be taking more and more bits of the light into itself that God is still in charge, that the Lord is still on the throne, that he still reigns, that Peter has in his ears and his heart ringing the news that the light has come into the world. It shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Because as long as the gospel is preached by people who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, as long as there is a church that is willing and bold enough and courageous enough and trusting enough of God's power of the gospel to preach the gospel, this present darkness will not last. It cannot last. It will not last. Peter is remembering as well, I think, in saying this, he wants us to remember what he heard Jesus himself say in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, Jesus asks the apostles, who do men say that I am? Several of them give a couple of answers. One says, oh, some say you're Elijah. And he said, no, no, no. Don't tell me what the people say. What do you say? And then Peter stands up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus blesses Peter. And then he says, on this rock, that is the revelation of God the Father, that Jesus Christ is in fact the Son of the living God, on that rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is why Peter can say those who are presently not believing, those who are presently living in unbelief, they will not have the final say. Because the final say has already been determined by the one who has given his Son as the Atoning sacrifice for our redemption. Because whereas God appointed some to disbelieve, he has a greater destiny for those who do believe. And that brings us to verses 9 through 10. So in contrast to those who stumble, who trip over the gospel, who trip over who Jesus is because they are scandalized by his message. Jesus says, you, but you, uh, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, is that it was originally, the, the paraphrase here is first from Exodus 19 and then it's also from the book of Hosea. Originally addressed, the audience here was Israel, were Jews called the holy nation, God's chosen people. But here Peter now expands it to include Gentiles who were not born into the covenant that God made with Israel. And that paraphrase of Exodus 19 where Moses uh, 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 hears the Lord tell him, uh, now therefore, this is just before Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. Uh, God tells Moses, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter takes that verse, that text, addressed to Moses and Israel, and he now applies it to his Gentile brothers and sisters. This is a cosmic shift in God's plan of redemption. Because under the old covenant, what God did was he chose Israel. He elevated Israel above all the nations of the earth and gave it a unique position to be a holy kingdom of priests. Possessing all of the royalty, all of the dignity, all of the power, all of the authority that a royal kingdom or priest would have. Whose holiness was not derived from any virtue in and of themselves, but whose holiness came from the fact that God chose them to enter into covenant with them to carry out his plan of redemption for the world. God calls Israel a holy nation because of all the nations of the earth he set his seal of love upon them and he chose Israel to proclaim the excellencies of him who delivered them out of Egypt and into his marvelous light. What made Israel holy, in other words, what set her apart from the nations is not anything that was in them but it was the very covenant that God established with them that set them apart. It was their function that made them holy. It was their responsibility, their calling that made them holy. If, in the house where I grew up on Long Island, there was in the dining room there was a china closet. If you don't know what a china closet is, you've got to ask someone who was born before 1960. <laughs> this china closet is where my mother kept all of her finest dishes and dinnerware. All the cups, all the sources, saucers, and they you know, had a, a, a filigree a silver band around all of the dishes and cups. These dishes lived in that cabinet. And they were only delivered. They were only delivered from their captivity four times a year. Thanksgiving, Easter... Christmas and New Year's Day. And maybe, maybe on the rare occasion that Anthony and I would bring home the women that would eventually be our wives. They were holy dishes. (laughs) But it wasn't the fact that they were china that made them holy, it was their function. God has made you holy, He has opened the cabinet. And he has released you from your captivity to serve. Because our function as priests is that we may present the feast of the gospel to a world that doesn't even know they need it, but is dying for it. We have been released with this commission to proclaim his excellency. What are his excellencies? We sang them. His names are his excellencies. He is redeemer. He is healer. He is saviour. He is Prince of Peace, His grace, His mercy, His love. The power of His truth to transform a heart that was hard and darkened into one that is light and filled with joy, that is able to speak eloquently. You read Acts, and when Peter and John stand up to preach, one of the things that the religious leaders are shocked by is Where did these men get such knowledge because they were not educated in Torah as are we? Not that they were illiterate men, mind you. Not that they couldn't read. They didn't go to shul. But here they are proclaiming the excellencies and the glory of Christ. You don't have to go to the seminary to proclaim his excellencies. Just open the Bible and show people this is who Jesus is. This is how he changes people's lives. This is how he transformed my life. This is the truth. The largest audience, the target audience, if you will, of Israel's mission were the surrounding nations. That's our audience, because what Peter says is now that Christ has come, the mission given to Israel is now given to the church which includes Jew and Gentile. We have been brought in, if you will, to this marvelous covenant. So that our holiness is now derived not only from a covenant relationship that God has established with us, but a double holiness in the sense that his spirit now dwells within us. So it's a holiness that is imputed, that is transferred into us by virtue of the death of Christ and our faith in him. And our membership in the church then automatically makes us part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people of God's own possession whose mission it is to proclaim his excellencies his glory his virtue his marvelous character even at times his baffling ways remember go back to the beginning of the letter peter writes with regard to the salvation the inheritance that, has been, that is kept for us in heaven. He says, in this re- you rejoice in knowing that we have been born again, that we have this inheritance. He says, though thou for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes. Though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Do you understand that when you're going through a trial, and it could be a the the kind of trial, the depth of the trial is immaterial. It could be an illness, it could be debt, it could be a, a relational crisis, it could be anything, a trial is anything. That tests your character so that your faith in Christ might grow. When you go through that kind of trial and your unbelieving family member, friend, or coworker watches you. You have an opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have the opportunity to say, this is hard what I'm going through. But I'm trusting God to bring me through it. How? I'm praying I'm leaning on the support and prayers of my friends at church. I'm reading the scripture. That is how I'm getting through this. That's proclaiming his excellencies. That's not leaning on your own understanding. That's turning everything over to him. It's what Peter will say later on. Casting all of your burdens onto him because he cares for you. So that the very trials you go through, remember, it's how the Spirit is chiseling away the bits of our old life so that we become more and more to reflect the image of Jesus. Or, in the words of Samuel Ward, the whole of our duty as men and women is to give ourselves wholly to Christ, soul, spirit, and body, and all that is within us, dedicating and devoting ourselves to His service all the days of our lives. So, to recap... As a source of our identity, Jesus is the reason we are God's people. That those who believe in Jesus will be honored by God at the judgment. And God has a greater destiny for those who believe. What does that mean by way of application? Three things. Number one, that the cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ. He is the means by which the Holy Spirit adds more living stones, people, as part of its construction. Number two. That just because some people don't believe in Jesus now, it doesn't mean they will never believe in him. Our mission as priests and kings, if you will, is to keep telling people about Jesus and lead the ultimate work of conversion and or condemnation to God. We must trust the gospel to be the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then three, understand with a great amount of grace that the church will never be perfect. No church will ever be perfect because the people in it, that's me and that's you, are imperfect. Nevertheless, it is our God-given mission to tell people that God specializes in saving and reforming and changing and transforming imperfect people. More and more to the image of Christ and how by God's grace we are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And I will end with this. We spent a great deal of time a couple of uh, discipleship groups ago going through um, Bonhoeffer's book Life Together and a little bit of his book The Cost of Discipleship. Near the end of The Cost of Discipleship, which really is an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, Bonhoeffer writes this about the church. The community of the saints is not an ideal community consisting of perfect and sinless men and women where there is no need of further repentance. No, it is a community which proves that it is worthy of the gospel of forgiveness by constantly and sincerely proclaiming God's forgiveness, which has nothing to do with self-forgiveness. Let me say that again. It is a community which proves that it is worthy of the gospel of forgiveness by constantly and sincerely proclaiming God's forgiveness, which has nothing to do with self-forgiveness. It is a community of men and women who have genuinely encouraged the precious grace of God and who walk worthily of the gospel by not casting that grace recklessly away. You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege, what a responsibility. But what a savior, what a spirit, what a Heavenly Father who calls us and equips us to do that which in our own strength we cannot do, to serve you as a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people of your own possession to proclaim your excellencies to those who are in desperate need of finding solace for their sin and forgiveness, O Lord God, in all aspects. Help us to live out and to practice this grace, to treasure it always, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.